morality must never suffer susan in in the face of adversity we must stay moral but we must stay ethical and we must follow straightforward guidelines and continue to make the right choices for our patients even in the face of adversity i hope we never have to face that here in this episode Dr. Morjani and I have this critical conversation regarding rationing care with medical services and the moral dilemma this causes for healthcare providers, patients, families, and society itself. Dr. Morjani is an infectious disease specialist and is currently at the front line in providing his infectious disease expertise in the state of New York which at this time has the highest number of confirmed cases of COVID-19 in New York hospitals are currently faced with critically ill COVID-19 patients governor andrew cuomo of new york has projected that the number of hospital beds needed would be as high as 140,000 and 40,000 of these beds would be utilized as intensive care beds with ventilators Governor Cuomo has also projected that the state of New York would also need 30,000 more ventilators in order to properly treat the large surge of patients with COVID-19. Fears and concerns about having to ration medical care and deny life-saving treatment has weighed heavily on the minds of all clinicians. In Italy, hospitals unfortunately have been forced to deny potentially life-saving treatment to the elderly with comorbid conditions due to a shortage of ventilator machines. These are certainly the most difficult decisions for any healthcare provider to make. In the USA, we are a society that advocates to keep people alive, and as healthcare providers, we want to provide and honor these life-saving treatments. If there ever was a time in the 21st century where morality has been profoundly exemplified, it would be now with this powerful pandemic. This is a novel journey for all of us as we bravely face this together in combating COVID-19. Before I start this episode, let's listen to the latest announcement from Governor Andrew Cuomo of New York regarding this journey that we face together. And during this difficult time, let's listen to the voices of our better angels as individuals, as families, as a community, and as a society. We're going to get through this. The only question is how we get through it and when we get through it. But let's make sure at the end of the day that we can say we are the better for it and our children are the better for it. Join me in this episode, The Powerful Pandemic Part 2, as we face this novel journey together in combating COVID-19 with courage, benevolence, and strength in our hearts. I'm Dr. Susan Rashid, your host for Secrets of Survival.
is often compared to the Spanish flu of 1918. And so we're going to bring in a little bit of history here. Would you share the history of the Spanish flu of 1918? And how did various cities throughout the USA attempt in halting the spread of 1918 Spanish flu? So the 1918 Spanish flu worldwide epidemic, you know, which infected tens of millions around the world and including in the U.S., where some cities like, uh, you know, major metropolitan cities were not able to do social distancing and containment and lockdowns and had a huge surge of patients which overwhelmed the system and resulted in a catastrophic sort of three or four weeks where law and order broke down, where, you know, people died, and it was just awful. Whereas there were cities, for example, St. Louis in Missouri, mm-hmm. which, uh, which instituted lockdowns and, uh, and social distancing in a very successful way. So that contrast can be seen on the CDP website, and I highly encourage people to see that. So a small number of cases, the so total number of cases over a year was the same in both these cities, for example, that were similar by way of demographics. Uh, but in St. Louis, there was no breakdown in law and order and people got health care and people were taken care of and uh, came out of it much stronger with an economy that was able to deal with the recovery period and take advantage of the recovery period much faster and much better. So that's the whole concept today is with COVID-19, we are trying to flatten that curve. As I said before, everybody's going to get this. Almost everybody is going to get this disease. Only question is over what period of time and what severity and flattening the curve will help both of those situations where you will get a disease over time, but it'll be mild and it will not have a major impact on a health care, on a health uh, status of the person who is infected. Since COVID-19 appears clinically similar to the flu and we are also in the flu season and in the future, if this virus was to most likely show up again, a clinician would be prudent to test for both influenza and COVID-19. Would you think that this is something that needs to be available on site, the influenza testing at correctional facilities in order to differentiate between the two disease process? Oh, I absolutely agree. You know, I think people, there is uh, absolute, uh, in the medical world, we are absolutely certain that we are going to see infected patients. Right. Uh, there's no question about it. The two viruses are, uh, you know, it's, they live independently of each other. They are mutually separate from each other. Uh, even though they infect the same uh, organ systems, they attach to different receptors. The pathophysiology is different. So there's no reason to expect that one infection will prevent the other one. So, and I, and I, we don't know what happens in a dual infected case. We just haven't seen too many of those cases and uh, we haven't followed those, so we don't know the clinical history. Uh, I have not seen a dual infected case yet, and I have not seen anything reported in the literature. Uh, what we are seeing is mono-infected patients, either flu or COVID-19. But it's a matter of time before we see somebody who is dual infected, because the viruses coexist. Yeah, you're absolutely right. It makes sense to have the testing on site, the expedite testing. And once you know you can do something about the flu, there is antiviral and uh, you can do prophylaxis for those that aren't with antiviral. Right. And then they also stresses the fact that people should take their flu vaccine because it does help and if it doesn't prevent flu completely, it actually makes the flu less severe in a patient that has received the flu vaccine. 
So the manifestations become mild. And I'm hoping that very soon, within a year, year and a half of that, Dr. Fauci has said, we will have a vaccine for COVID-19 as well. So that's good to know. You know, the, the question about being monitored if you're tested positive for COVID-19 and then you're quarantined for 14 days and then you do have an improvement in your symptoms uh, and you get retested again for COVID-19 and you're still positive, but you're symptom free at this point and you've just recovered from COVID-19. And I think this is like a very critical question. And how long does this virus shed for? Truly, how long is a person infectious for? Do we still know the the duration of time that a person would be shedding this virus and then it'll they'll stop shedding the virus yeah so there are some very good epidemiological studies coming out uh, now on viral shedding from both uh, europe and from the u.s where we are seeing that the virus can usually is shed from the infected patient upper respiratory tract for up to 14 days but there have been isolated cases of 20 to 21 days of shedding. Now, nobody knows whether once your symptoms resolve, that whether these cases are infectious or not. Is this viable virus or is it just the genetic code of the virus that's in those tissues and it is being shed? Only time will tell whether the virus is infective or not. Having said that, I think it's prudent to isolate people, patients who have the disease, until they are PCR negative times two over 24 hours apart. Because then you're certain the patient is not shedding the virus and will not infect anybody else. Uh, until such time, we get better information as to what the infectivity period is for an infected patient. There's a concern right now with hospital beds and ventilators being available throughout the USA. And since you are working in one of the hot spots in America and providing your infectious disease expertise, do you happen to know how many hospital beds and ventilators are available in the state of New York? So the state of New York actually in 2015 put out a pandemic preparation plan. Mm-hmm. So there's an official New York state pandemic response plan. And I encourage everybody to look at that, which actually addresses this. Now, it is my understanding from reading that plan that there are approximately 8,000 ventilators and about about uh, 60,000 ICU beds available mm-hmm. in the in the in the state right now. Uh, in a pandemic, the requirement would be much higher for both of those. Uh, if the pandemic was to allow to to have a spike where we cannot flatten the curve, it would then mean that you have to prioritize and triage who gets a ventilator and who does not. And, and to prepare for that, there's actually a beautiful section, a very well-written section in that guideline from New York State that addresses the triaging of patients who will go on a ventilator. The concept of exclusion criteria is step one. Then the concept of sequential organ failure assessment, we call it SOFA, S-O-F-A, sequential mm-hmm. organ failure assessment, giving a score based on clinical and, and laboratory criteria and based on the score, prioritizing who gets the ventilator and who does not. And then sequentially analyzing that SOFA score over 24 hours, 48 hours, 72 hours, and ongoing assessment to see who can come off a ventilator is enable and who has to stay on a ventilator. Or where if the clinical disease is worsening and there is no hope to do terminal extubation. So I think that is absolutely fantastic to be prepared just in case the need arises. I'm very hopeful that by flattening the curve, as, as Governor Cuomo is doing with his leadership, 
that we will never come to that situation with COVID-19. If a pandemic was to arise where you're going to need a lot more supplies than what you have right now, do you think that's something that can be accomplished where you're at right now with the supplies that you have in hand? Yes, I'm happy to report that New York State has launched a, a war effort to procure supplies in case there is a pandemic. We call it pandemic preparation, and that is in full flow right now. And uh, it is going on, uh, you know, very well so far. Uh, I think we are either meeting the goals or a little bit ahead of goal in getting these supplies uh, stockpiled just in case more ventilators are being manufactured and being placed in areas where they can be supplied to places that need them. Uh, Personnel is another very big important piece where nurses who have recently retired and physicians who are in the community of recently retired are being asked to come and uh, join the workforce back. Nurses can be moved around without uh, the need for having lengthy credentialing processes. And so the national emergency that has been declared allows that to happen. As I said before, bureaucracy and red tape have come down. Mm -hmm. So you can rapidly move nurses from one area to another. You can rapidly move residents and fellows and physicians from one place to another in time of need as needed. So it's good to see preparation and I hope it never comes to it. I don't think it'll ever come to it. Dr. Fauci had mentioned that COVID-19 is 10 times more lethal than influenza. Do you agree with that statement that he made? So the case fatality rate, as we know now, is somewhere in the range of 1% to 2%. But as we have talked about before, we do not know the actual extent of this disease. We have no idea what the asymptomatic cases are or mildly symptomatic cases are. The case fatality rate, as we know now, is only for those who have presented to the healthcare authorities with symptomatic disease. So I expect that case fatality rate of 1% to come down. But right now, you know, the best guess is 1%. So let's stick with that. Uh, you know, and, and I think it's a good opportunity to tell people that if you do have this disease, then do things what you can do personally to reduce the amount of virus that exists. So, you know, things like uh, doing warm saline gargle, things like doing, you know, taking hot water, sipping hot water every three to four hours, things like taking, uh, you know, turmeric milk, we call it golden milk now, (laughs) Uh, it's widely available, which will reduce the amount of virus that's present in your throat, on your throat receptors, so less virus gets into your lung where it does the most damage. And I think so personal protection, washing hands with soap and water, using the alcohol sanitizer frequently, not touching your face, social distancing so you don't acquire, uh, you know, the amount of virus from other people around you that are infected, uh, coughing etiquette, sneezing etiquette, those are the kind of things. And then, you know, spreading the message around you to family and friends to do all these personal protection measures will reduce the severity of disease, will reduce the viral uh, load in the individual person and hopefully collectively in the community and make this a flatter curve. So we can flatten the curve with individual efforts, grassroots efforts. So I highly encourage everybody, whether working in corrections or outside or living in whichever part of this world to follow this advice. 
Thank you for sharing that. The death rate of COVID-19 in Italy is approximately at 5% versus the death rate that is estimated from World Health Organization is at around 3.4%. If I may ask, why is the death rate so high in Italy compared to what World Health Organization has estimated the death rate to be for this disease process? So I do not know how to explain the death rate in Italy. Does it have, so the speculation, of course, amongst the academic circles is, is there some um, issue with the amount of receptor expression in the, in the lung, which this attaches to? Is it the issue of some medication that people take? For example, ibuprofen, uh, which has been shown to upregulate these uh, receptors that the virus attaches to. Has there been a lot of use of ibuprofen? Has that contributed to it? Again, this is all speculation right now. There's nothing known. Is it due to, you know, close contact and the social existence in, in Italy, which is causing this virus to spread rapidly and exposing people to high amounts of virus? We don't know. Nobody knows. It's just speculation. Uh, but uh, it's good to see the Italian government respond in a, in a major big way. There's a big push to control this disease and to bring the number of people affected by this disease down, which will lower the death rate, of course. So, uh, you know, and then uh, we talked about smoking. It's a personal measures, personal measures to protect yourself, to keep yourself healthy, to get your diabetes under control, to keep your blood pressure under control, and to get your heart in shape as best as possible so that you don't give this virus a chance to hurt you. You had mentioned about the lung receptors. What did you, could you elaborate on that? So the virus actually attaches to the receptors in the lung called the ACE2 receptors. Mm -hmm. So is it possible that the genetic structure of the Italians has, uh, has sort of resulted in the Italians having much higher levels of ACE2 receptor in the lung? We don't know. Only time will tell. So it's speculation to... To try and explain this higher death rate in Italy, does it have to do with genetics? Does it have to do with receptors? Does it have to do with uh, over-the-counter medication use? Does it have to do with some kind of social or cultural factors that exist locally? Does it have to do with smoking? Nobody knows except studies will be done and we will have answers. But it is my uh, sincere hope that very soon, very rapidly, this death rate will come down and uh, people in Italy will recover once they're infected. ACE2 receptors, I'm curious, um, what, is, how, what is that linked to and why would, being, why would the virus attaching to this particular receptor be dangerous? Well, this virus attaches to ACE2 receptors. That's its natural form of attachment and infection before it gets into the cell. Okay. And that's, that's how the virus is, is designed. That's its genetic code. And uh, those ACE2 receptors do exist in the human body, in the throat, in the respiratory tree, and in the lung, and also in the GI tract. And so maybe that explains why we see some diarrhea from this disease. Uh, I'm not sure. I don't think that's been studied yet. Uh, okay. I think it's just speculation. But though we know that the virus attaches to those ACE2 receptors. So is there something we can do to block that attachment? Is there something we can do to downregulate those receptors? All those strategies are currently being looked at and we should have answers hopefully sooner than later.
Absolutely. And thank you for sharing that lovely piece of physiology in such a straightforward fashion. Um, You can see it all over the world right now that Italy is just really standing out as a lot of um, a lot of cases growing by the day. And we have, unfortunately, a lot of people are passing away from this disease process. And so it brings to question what is going on there that needs to be looked into, or it just brings to mind these things. And I, I liked what you had said. Maybe there's so many factors, but thank you for sharing that, Doctor. And I'm sure we're going to find out more as time continues. Speaking of the thing what Italy is showing that's really imperative for United States is that they are overwhelmed with their hospital beds and ventilator use. And the population of the Italians that are getting highly affected by this disease process are the ones that are elderly with comorbid conditions. And unfortunately, they are having to practice rationing their care. And so some people are having to be turned away, especially those who have a poor prognosis, older age and comorbid conditions, because there simply are not enough beds and equipment to treat COVID-19 in in Italy at this time. And so I have to ask from one clinician to another, and I'm sure a lot of healthcare providers are thinking of the same, this, this ethical issue right now, and that is having to ration care. Do you see this being an ethical issue that healthcare providers will have to face in the United States? And what are your thoughts on all of this? So my um, my feelings go out to the healthcare providers in Italy. I think this is a very difficult time for them, and I and I wish them all the best in dealing with these difficult times. Where you have to make ethical and moral choices. Uh, Morality must never suffer, Susan. In in the face of adversity, we must stay moral, but we must stay ethical, and we must follow straightforward guidelines and continue to make the right choices for our patients, even in the face of adversity. I hope we never have to face that here. Uh, but when people have to face it, they have to make difficult choices, and the Italians are doing exactly that. Yes, I, I, Let, let's hope we don't have to do that here. I, I hope uh, so too. That, that's what we are preparing for. We are preparing to make sure we never come to that state. Yes, I, I agree, doctor. I, I commend the Italians for being so brave. <laughs> They're so brave and going out there and letting us know not only what they're doing, but also that they're having to face these issues. And so, you know, as clinicians, we're trained to provide care no matter what and no matter what walk of life, no matter what age. And we do we do things not only by the book, but we do things with good heart and with a good mindset for the best prognosis. And so... The other question that I had was any news or updates in prison policy with managing COVID-19 with the New York Department of Corrections? Yes, so we have flowcharts, we have policies, we are prepared, we have collaborations with the DOH, testing is going to be available without any issues, and uh, whatever clinically needs to be done will be done, Um, and uh, hopefully the administration will continue to review the policies for release uh, for, uh, for in, inmates who are non-violent because I think that is the need of the hour where you can reduce the number of people behind bars in close quarters so if, if and when something like this enters into the prison system uh, we can manage it more effectively. We have reduced visitations yes. uh, almost completely 
except for uh, just the absolute uh, necessary visitation. So far, everybody has taken that very well. Mm-hmm. And it has gone down uh, without any hindrance or objections. We are educating our inmates, our correctional staff, both the ones who work in prison and the healthcare staff on coughing etiquette and uh, sneezing etiquette. We are uh, educating them on the various policies that are in place and what will a flowchart looks like. There are simulation exercises going on right now as to how the system would perform if there is a patient that presents or a visitor that presents or a correctional staff that presents. And I'm happy to report it works very well because we had a correctional officer present at the the administration and what during his course of duties during the day developed fever and uh, and and sweating and he was seen by employee health and sent to the ER turned out to have flu but it was heartening to see the system go into effect and respond in the most appropriate fashion. Yes, that's very good to hear. Thank you, doctor. I do see that New York Department of Corrections has suspended visits to the state prisoners starting on March 12th in 2020 for the New York Department of Corrections. So it it looks like that the social distancing concept to combat COVID-19 among the incarcerated is is definitely taking effect in your state. So it's very, very good to hear. And then my final question is, Would you share your thoughts how COVID-19 has changed or will be changing the morale of society? So, Susan, my uh, sincere hope is that we can flatten this curve and it gives us time to come up with an effective antiviral. And I hope that happens very soon in the next few months. Mm -hmm. It is also my sincere hope that a vaccine development, which is right now in, in progress, proceeds without hindrance and we have a successful vaccine for this virus soon. We are looking at maybe 12 to 18 months as per Dr. Fauci. It is also uh, my sincere hope that uh, flattening of the curve will result in a very uh, structured response to this pandemic. The pandemic will evolve as it must and people will get, get the infection but will overwhelming majority will recover and we hope that the case fatality rate goes down to near zero. Uh, It'll never go down to zero, but let's hope it is as close to zero as possible. We have a healthcare system in this country that is absolutely the best in the world as far as quality. And I'm, I'm very heartened to see the response of this healthcare system so far, despite the initial missteps of testing and, uh, and cohorting and social distancing. Uh, I'm happy to see that all the arms of the government and the healthcare system are working in cohesiveness and responding appropriately to as needed. And I'm happy to see that the individuals, the, the people of this country are responding and participating in social distancing and become responsible. So this responsible behavior over for self, for, for community, for state, for country, uh, will almost certainly translate into... I think lower crime rates, uh, and for certainly, as far as I'm concerned as an infectious disease doctor, we are going to see these self-protective measures translate into much lower incidence of respiratory and GI infectious diseases for years to come. These are behavioral changing times, and the behavior that will change in a positive way, will we will reap the benefits of that as society over uh, the 
over the future, near future and the long-term future, I hope. Yes, it, it's amazing how a pandemic could make you suddenly become wishing to be more healthier, making better healthy life choices with regards to that. Thank you, Dr. Murjani, for all of that. I, you know, we just always have to stay positive, you know, no matter how difficult things get. And I, I definitely appreciate your positive note and all of this and how well you explain everything. And I commend you for being at the front line and giving your expertise right now for, for your county and for the state of New York. They're very lucky to have you. Thank you again, Dr. Morjani. We'll definitely stay in touch. And I'm sure there's going to be some more updates as we continue learning more about this disease process. Thank you again. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, let's touch base again uh, in the near future and see what new developments this is going to be. Survival.